Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. October 2. On this date in history, in the year 1944, Warsaw Uprising ends. The Warsaw Uprising ends on October 2, 1944, with the surrender of the surviving Polish rebels to German forces. Two months earlier, the approach of the Red Army to Warsaw prompted Polish resistance forces to launch a rebellion against the Nazi occupation. The rebels, who supported the democratic Polish government in exile in London, hoped to gain control of the city before the Soviets liberated it. The Poles feared that if they failed to take the city, the Soviet conquerors would forcibly set up a pro-Soviet communist regime in Poland. The poorly supplied Poles made early gains against the Germans, but Nazi leader Adolf Hitler sent reinforcements. In brutal street fighting, the Poles were gradually overcome by superior German weaponry. Meanwhile, the Red Army occupied a suburb of Warsaw, but made no efforts to aid the Polish rebels. The Soviets also rejected a request by the British to use Soviet airbases to airlift supplies to the beleaguered Poles. After 63 days, the Poles, out of arms, supplies, food, and water, were forced to surrender. In the aftermath, the Nazis deported much of Warsaw's population and destroyed the city. With protesters in Warsaw out of the way, the Soviets faced little organized opposition in establishing a communist government in Poland. October 3. On this date in history in the year 1895, The Red Badge of Courage is published. The Red Badge of Courage by Stephen Crane is published in book form. The story of a young man's experience of battle was the first American novel to portray the Civil War from an ordinary Union soldier's point of view. The tale originally appeared as a serial published by a newspaper syndicate. Crane, the youngest of 14 children, was born in 1871 and grew up in New York and New Jersey. His father died when Crane was nine, and the family settled in Ashbury Park, New Jersey. He attended Syracuse University, where he played baseball for a year, but then left. He became a journalist in New York, taking short stints for various newspapers and living in near poverty. Immersed in the hand-to-mouth life of lower-class New York, Crane closely observed the characters around him, and in 1893, at age 23, he published Maggie, A Girl of the Streets, about a poor girl's decline into prostitution and suicide. Finding a publisher was difficult, given the book's scandalous content, so Crane ultimately published it himself. The book was a critical success but failed to sell well. He turned his attention to more popular topics and began writing The Red Badge of Courage, which made him into an international celebrity at age 24. The newspaper syndicate that serialized the novel sent him on assignment to cover the West in Mexico. 
1897, he went to Cuba to write about the insurrection against Spain. On the way there, he stayed at a dingy hotel where he met Cora Howard Taylor, who became his lifelong companion. In 1897, his boat to Cuba sank, and he barely survived. His short story, The Open Boat, is based on his experiences in a lifeboat with the captain and the cook. Crane later covered the war between Greece and Turkey and finally settled in England, where he made friends with Joseph Conrad, H.G. Wells, and Henry James. Crane contracted tuberculosis in his late 20s. Cora Howard Taylor nursed him while he wrote furiously in an attempt to pay off his debts. He exhausted himself and exacerbated his condition. He died in June 1900 at the age of 28. October 4. On this date in history, in the year 1861, President Lincoln watches a balloon ascension. President Abraham Lincoln observes a balloon demonstration near Washington, D.C. Both Confederate and Union armies experimented with using balloons to gather military intelligence in the early stages of the war, but the balloons proved to be dangerous and impractical for most situations. Though balloons were not new, many felt that their military applications had yet to be realized. Even before the firing on Fort Sumter in April 1861, marking the start of the Civil War, several firms approached the U.S. War Department concerning contracts for balloons. The primary figure in the Union's experiments with balloons was Thaddeus S.C. Lowe, an inventor who had been working with hydrogen balloons for several years before the war. He had built a large craft and hoped to make a transatlantic crossing. In 1861, he conducted trials around Cincinnati, Ohio, with the support of the Smithsonian Institution. On April 19, he took off on a flight that floated all the way to Unionville, South Carolina, where he was jailed briefly by Confederates who were convinced he was a Union spy. Lowe became the head of the Union's Balloon Corps in 1861 and served effectively during the Peninsular Campaign of 1862. With the view provided from his balloon, he discovered that the Confederates had evacuated Yorktown, Virginia, and he provided important intelligence during the Battle of Fair Oaks, Virginia. Lowe enjoyed a good working relationship with George McClellan, commander of the Army of the Potomac, but experienced difficulty with McClellan's successors, Generals Ambrose Burnside and Joseph Hooker, who were not convinced that balloon observations provided accurate information. Lowe became increasingly frustrated with the Army, particularly after his pay was slashed in 1863. Feeling that Army commanders did not take his service seriously, Lowe resigned in the spring of 1863. The Balloon Corps was disbanded in August of that same year. Lowe later became involved in the building of a railway in California. He died there in 1913 at the age of 80. October 5. On this date in history, in the year 1892, the Dalton Gang is wiped out in Coffeyville, Kansas. On October 5, 1892, the famous Dalton Gang attempts the daring daylight robbery of two Coffeyville, Kansas banks at the same time. But if the gang members believed the sheer audacity of their plan would bring them success, they were sadly mistaken. Instead, they were nearly all killed by quick-acting townspeople. For a year and a half, the Dalton Gang had terrorized the state of Oklahoma, most concentrating on train holdups. 
Though the gang had more murders than loot to their credit, they had managed to successfully evade the best efforts of Oklahoma law officers to bring them to justice. Perhaps success bred overconfidence, but whatever their reasons, the gang members decided to try their hand at robbing not just one bank, but at robbing the first National and Condon banks in their old hometown of Coffeyville at the same time. After riding quietly into town, the men tied their horses to a fence in an alley near the two banks and split up. Two of the Dalton brothers, Bob and Emmett, headed for the first national, while Grat Dalton led Dick Broadwell and Bill Powers to the Condon Bank. Unfortunately for the Daltons, someone recognized one of the gang members and began quietly spreading the word that the town banks were being robbed. Thus, while Bob and Emmett were stuffing money into a grain sack, the townspeople ran for their guns and quickly surrounded the two banks. When the Dalton brothers walked out of the bank, a hail of bullets forced them back into the building. Regrouping, they tried to flee out the back door of the bank, but the townspeople were waiting for them there as well. Meanwhile, in the Condon Bank, a brave cashier had managed to delay Grat Dalton, Powers, and Broadwell with a classic claim that the vault was on a time clock and couldn't be opened. That gave the townspeople enough time to gather force. And, suddenly, a bullet smashed through the bank window and hit Broadwell in the arm. Quickly scooping up $1,500 in loose cash, the three men bolted out the door and fled down a back alley. But like their friends next door, they were immediately shot and killed, this time by a local livery stable owner and a barber. When the gun battle was over, the people of Coffeyville had destroyed the Dalton gang, killing every member except for Emmett Dalton. But their victory was not without a price. The Daltons took four townspeople to their graves with them. After recovering from serious wounds, Emmett was tried and sentenced to life in prison. After 14 years, he won parole, and he eventually leveraged his cachet as a former Wild West bandit into a position as a screenwriter in Hollywood. Several years after moving to California, he died at the age of 66 in 1937. October 6. On this date in history, in the year 1683, the first Mennonites arrive in America. Encouraged by William Penn's offer of 5,000 acres of land in the colony of Pennsylvania and the freedom to practice their religion, the first Mennonites arrive in America aboard the Concord. They were among the first Germans to settle in the American colonies. The Mennonites, members of a Christian sect founded by Menno Simons in the 16th century, were widely persecuted in Europe. Seeking religious freedom, Mennonite Francis Daniel Pastorius led a group from Krefeld, Germany, to Pennsylvania in 1683 and founded Germantown, the pioneer German settlement in America and now part of the city of Philadelphia. Numerous other German groups followed, and by the American Revolution, there were 100,000 Germans in William Penn's former colony, more than a third of Pennsylvania's total population at the time. October 7. On this date in history, in the year 1985, Lynette Woodward becomes the first female Harlem Globetrotters player. Lynette Woodward, captain of the gold medal-winning U.S. Olympic women's basketball team in 1984, becomes the first female player for the Harlem Globetrotters. I got chills, Woodward, 26, says of her selection. 
I just shook my head and I said, it's me. I know it's me. She beats out nine other finalists for the historic honor. It was perhaps fitting that Woodward became the first female globetrotter as her obsession with basketball began when her husband, Herbert Geese Osby, then a member of the barnstorming team, visited her when she was eight. After witnessing Osby spin the ball on his finger and show off other globetrotter moves, she was hooked. Woodard traveled with the Globetrotters for two years and was presented with a Legends ring in 1996, joining her cousin Osby in receiving the team's most prestigious honor. After leading Wichita North High School to two state championships, Woodard became a star at the University of Kansas. When she finished college in 1981, however, she had limited options in women's professional basketball. The first Women's National Basketball Association, WNBA season, did not tip off until 1997. So Woodard played two seasons in the Italian Women's League, leading all players in scoring. Woodard led the Americans' 1984 Olympic team to a gold medal, but she did not play at the 1980 Olympics in Moscow because of the U.S. boycott. After her retirement from professional basketball in 1995, Woodard came out of retirement to play two seasons in the WNBA for the Cleveland Rockers and Detroit Shock. In 2004, Woodard was enshrined in the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. October 8. On this date in history, in the year 1957, Jerry Lee Lewis records Great Balls of Fire in Memphis, Tennessee. Jerry Lee Lewis was not the only early rock and roller from a strict Christian background who struggled to reconcile his religious beliefs with the moral implications of the music he created. He may have been the only one to have one of his religious crises caught on tape, however, in between takes on one of his legendary hit songs. It was on April 8, 1957, that Bible school dropout Jerry Lee Lewis laid down the definitive version of Great Balls of Fire amidst a losing battle with his conscience and with the legendary Sam Phillips, head of Sun Records. Jerry Lee Lewis had first made his way to Sun Records in September 1956, hoping to catch his big break in the same Memphis recording studio where Elvis had caught his. The result of Lewis's first session in November 1956 was the minor hit Crazy Arms, but six months later, he and Phillips struck gold with a whole lot of shaking going on, a million-selling smash. Lewis's signature piano-pounding style and electric stage presence made him an instantaneous star, but stardom didn't quiet the doubts that his upbringing in the Assemblies of God Church had given him about rock and roll. Those doubts would be on open display when he went back to the studio on this day in 1957. It was hours into the Great Balls of Fire session when Jerry Lee began arguing with Sam Phillips that the song was too sinful for him to record. As the two talked loudly over each other, Phillips pleaded with Lewis to believe that his music could actually be a force for moral good. Phillips says, you can save souls. Lewis says, no, no, no. Phillips says, yes. Lewis says, how can the devil save souls? I got the devil in me. Jerry Lee somehow made peace with the conflict over the course of the next hour, becoming comfortable enough to begin making various unprintable statements on his way to saying with enthusiasm, You ready to cut it? You ready to go? Just before launching into the take, 
that would soon become his second smash hit single. Jerry Lee Lewis's moral struggles would continue throughout a storied career that would never quite recover from the 1958 disclosure of his marriage to a 13-year-old cousin. At the peak of his powers, following great balls of fire, however, he was a figure as magnetic as any in rock and roll history. As the producer Don Dixon would later say in an NPR interview, Little Richard was fun, Elvis was cool, but Jerry Lee Lewis was frightening. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for October 2 through October 8. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, we invite you to connect or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.